Up next, we have the amazing Dr. Yabble Dr. Yabble is an activist, scholar, speaker, and author of One Drop, Shifting the Lens on Race. In this episode, Shonda and Yabble talk about the complexities of colorism, the history of blackness, and the politics of race and identity. And I couldn't get enough of Shonda and Dr. Yabble laughing and sharing moments with one another. It's somewhat healing, actually, listening to their stories and sharing vulnerability and awarenesses. And now I'm wondering, is it healing at all to you? Here's our host, Shonda Smith-Baker, and our guest, Dr. Yabble Enjoy the show. Marcus Owens, who leads our African American Leadership Forum here, was like, you have to have Yaba Blay, Dr. Yaba Blay. You have to have her. <laughs> so I appreciate you being here. So this episode is also being um, sponsored. So we'll say more about that with the Serdna Foundation, who is very interested in raising uh, narrative. And how do we look at narratives about um, what's happening in community and who is in community, which is incredibly important to me. Um, I'm coming to you now from North Minneapolis, um, which was the black neighborhood um, in Minneapolis. And, you know, as a youngster, I was always struck by how people defined the neighborhood that didn't feel consistent with my experience. Um, and I still experience that. And I'm still a resident here. And I know that you were um, raised in your early years in New Orleans, which I have such a love with that place and just feel like it's a place where you're free to be you and they don't have sort of the same boundaries around race as we do in Minneapolis. And so I'm seeing you frowning, but I've, I have um, romanticized that place. So am I wrong? Um, I don't know if wrong, but I think it's just maybe a different lens. You know, it's always about the comparison point. So if you're comparing New Orleans to Minneapolis, then it sounds like it would seem or feel different, you know. Um, But in my experience, I know that most people who visit New Orleans and fall in love with New Orleans haven't really been to New Orleans. They've been to the tourist center, they've been to the space and the place that makes the city money. They've been to the place that, you know, after Hurricane Katrina, when thousands of people were still displaced and many more still dead in the streets, they rushed to restore so as to not lose their money. So, you know, when people say they love New Orleans, you know, I love New Orleans too. I just wonder which New Orleans you love, you know? Um, New Orleans is an interesting place culturally and historically. And so though it is in the South, I always say it's, you know, it's not the South, you know, it's, it's in Louisiana, but it's not Louisiana. Like the minute you step outside of, of New Orleans, it's a different experience, but it's not sheltered from that experience still, you know? So in my experience, New Orleans is very, um, stratified, uh, and segregated in a lot of ways. New New Orleans, of course, like many cities with gentrification and so many people coming in from a variety of places, college students and and whatnot. 
Um, it, it may feel different, but it, it's, I think it's still pretty segregated in a lot of ways. You know, it's white, it's black, and it's Creole. Mm. Um, and so race functions, I think it might not feel like it's at the fore of our lived experience in particular ways because we do live in, in, in silos, you know? So I, I grew up in uh, a very Black community, culturally, racially, and otherwise. Um, I also grew up first-generation American-born Ghanaian, you know? So Ghana was at home and Black America, you know, Black New Orleans was was outside and so always navigating between those two places. But notions of race and racism, I didn't experience it the same way I did once I moved to the Northeast. Mm. And I think it's because of just the ability to be so sheltered by our culture, you know, and to have a particular lived experience. But at the same time, you know, older generations always, we, we were still very clear, you know, about power dynamics, you know, and, and even if it wasn't strictly just white, black, we were aware of that. There was still the stratification of, of color. You know, it, it's how I came to be so interested in colorism, you know, because it wasn't so cut and dry, white and black as much as it was like, well, what you look like, you know, what's your last name? What neighborhood do you live in? In terms of who had access to power and, and, and how they wielded it. So it was it was nuanced. You know, as I'm sitting here thinking about why I romanticize it, I think it is because when I go there and I think I feel this way about Atlanta, too, where you can go and you can actually see representation of who you are in everyday living, in the food, in the street names, in the in the buildings, in the art, um, in the people, you know where to go to find yourself. And that is not always true for people that live in different communities. Sure. And, and, and you are correct in that regard. <laughs> you know, New Orleans is a very, again, Black city, racially and historically. But again, you know, to that same point, when you talk about representation, it don't look like me. Mm-hmm. Right? Same here. Well, again, it's my interest in colorism. So, I mean, and I see this everywhere. But again, reflecting on my experience in New Orleans, it's like, who gets to represent Blackness? Which Blackness? What, what is the Blackness that is, that is uh, palatable? You know, which Blackness are we willing to put on Front Street as a representation of our community? Nine times out of 10, that's not going to look like me. You know, so even when we look at neighborhoods, you know, historically neighborhoods, you, you you know where somebody is from, you know, based upon what they look like or where they could be from, you know where they're not from. I'll put it that way. Um, and so, again, even as we talk about the history of New Orleans, you know, a history of Black mayors, a history of Black leadership, they don't look Black like my Black, you know? And so, yes, we can put it out there and, and celebrate particular victories if the dichotomy is Black and white. But if we're looking within Blackness, we still have very grave issues when it comes to representation. And it's very much informed by colorism. Meaning the, the brown of your skin changes in representation happen? You won't be represented. Mm-hmm. That's not the Black that, that is going to be, you know, 
projected. That's not the public blackness, because again, and, and again, for me, why it, when I think about my work in colorism and, and my commitment to showing it as very much tethered to white supremacy and a reflection of white supremacy, again, as you speak about your experience, you know, coming from and out of Minneapolis and, and having a particular experience, then going to New Orleans and feeling different, right? And feeling like, oh, this is better, perhaps, or, you know, there's more representation here. For those of us who look like me, <laughs> perhaps even look like you, who live in the city, it's a different, it's a different experience, the different feeling, like that's not enough, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not like, so you say, what's that mean to me? If you say, oh, look at all these black people, all these black people represented, which black people, because there's something still being communicated when you say this is the blackness that gets to be mayor. This is the blackness, right? That gets to be in a leadership position. We're sending very clear messages about what my blackness represents. And so we see stratification absolutely on economic lines, you know, um, when it comes to skin color. So it's, it's not as simple in that yeah. regard. I wonder, can we um, maybe just take a step back and talk a little bit? So you, your book, One Drop, you self-published in, uh, I think, 2013. Mm -hmm. And why did you self-publish that book? I self-published the book uh, because no publishers picked it up. I uh, started the project and uh, got lots of public um Visibility. Uh, it was the focus of CNN's last uh, Black in America. Worked with Soledad O'Brien, was a consulting producer on that project. Um, and so I'm thinking, okay, everybody gets it. Let's go. And in trying to pitch it to the quote unquote publishing industry at the time, um, it was deemed expensive because it's a full color photography book. And at the time, the retail price was $40. And the response that I was getting is that it was just too expensive to produce. And I don't think they believe they will get a return on their investment. And so lots of questions, you know, can we do it in black and white? Can you do it without pictures? Um, and then I wasn't willing to compromise on those things because I knew the story that I wanted to tell. And it absolutely was dependent upon, I mean, if we talk about skin color, <laughs> we got to see people, color, right? <laughs> um, and it was important to me that these narratives be accompanied by um, full color photographs. And so I'm a Sagittarius. So if you tell me I can't do something, I'm going to do it twice in your face. So I did it on my own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we share that. <laughs> we share that for sure so um went into uh publish your your book and so then now um it's been um uh reprinted yeah it was acquired by beacon press republished. and so how's it doing as far as i know it's doing well it sold out in the first 36 hours um it's back in stock now and and as far as i know sales are still they're going good. I have to celebrate that. So one drop, you have photos of women. People. Of people. And they tell their story. 
Yeah. And so the process was I interviewed uh, 70 folks, um, 58 of their narratives up here in the book. And so I interviewed them. And then from their interviews, which I transcribed, I pulled together narratives. So as you read them, they may not have said it in that exact order, but it's the narrative that we and I say we co-created in the sense that, you know, I ran every draft by everyone. I wanted to make sure that they felt comfortable with the story that was being told because it was their picture <laughs> that was going to be next to it, um, not mine. And so I spoke to all of these folks. The thing that they all share in common is that um, though they identify in a variety of ways, they all use a variety of terms to self-identify. And I use the language that they use. Um, they all see themselves as connected to Blackness, if not Black people, yet based upon their physical appearance, um, many of them have had the experience of having folks ask them, you know, what are you? Or question their Blackness flat out. And so for me, it was an interesting entryway into a conversation about Blackness, right? So if you were to ask me what is Blackness, I would still struggle to answer that because my blackness has never been questioned. I'm unquestionably black when I walk into a room, there's nothing to talk about. And so there's never been a reason for me to have to sit down and think about, define or describe what blackness is, it just is. But for folks who are constantly having to define and defend, they've had to spend some time thinking about it, if not talking about it. And so using their perspective um, as a way to, to start a conversation about black identity. Yeah. Do, do your parents, did they had to confront Blackness different when they came to America? Absolutely. And, and how did that inform you? My parents became Black when they came to the United States. Um, they're both from Ghana. Um, and so, you know, in Ghana, not only are you Ghanaian, but, you know, more specifically, you are your, uh, for lack of better word, People would say your tribal group. I'll say your cultural group. You know, so my mother's Kwau, my father's Nzema. We're matrilineal people. So I am what my mother is, you know, and, and you know who people are based upon their names or their, uh, their dialect or their intonation. Like, you know who people are based upon all of these uh, different kind of cultural um, characteristics. Um, but coming to the United States in the late 60s, you know, this is post Kwame Nkrumah, Ghana. Um, yeah, they became black. And so my father is a product. He's a Pan-Africanist. He is, um, he's pretty black himself. And so I get it honest. Um, he became black coming to this country. And I think the thing, interesting enough, and not to say that my father is distinct from all other West Africans, but I know one thing that is uh, unique, at least into my experience of, of my parents, is that my father is a Pan-African, meaning that, yes, he came to this country, yes, he recognizes that he's Ghanaian, that his background is different, perhaps, than Black Americans, but he was always attuned to the fact that that didn't make him better, right, or distinct in, in a way that would keep him I don't know, separate from, you know, and, and I say that because so many times we have these conversations um, about the kind of like rat beef between, you know, uh, uh, diaspora immigrants and black Americans and 
how so many folks are like, I'm not black, I'm this. I'm not black, I'm that. And my father, probably the first person um, to teach me that black was a huge umbrella and that we're all black, you know? And, and I remember very clearly, I have images of my father, like a drill sergeant, you know, telling me that like, you are black and you are Ghanaian, right? And I, and, I, and I didn't understand it as a child. I just thought, okay, he wants me to be proud and never forget that I'm African, which I never did. But, you know, as I've made sense of it growing up, I know that he's very much part of the reason why I understand the complexity of our identity, as well as the political nature of our identity. And for me, it's very clear that, yes, we absolutely should hold on to all of our cultural identities, no matter where we come from. But in the space that we live in, you know, in, in, in the context of white supremacy, that there is a time for me to be Black and there's a time for me to be Ghanaian. And those things aren't mutually exclusive. Mm. How do you define identity? Identity is, a, is, it can be a few things, but at the very least, it's who you say you are. You know, it's who you believe yourself to be. It's also, it's almost like a, I was going to say a roadmap, but when I think of my identity, it helps me to navigate this world. It helps me to know where I fit um, and or to create space for me fit, you know, um, but identity is absolutely how we see ourselves in relation to other people also, right? Because identity is also not something I can't, I can't just say I am who I am and then move on, but it's who I am in relation to other people as well. And so for me, there's so many types of identity, of course, you know, there's racial identity, there's cultural identity, history, historical identity, gender identity, sexual identity. Um, when I think of my identity, I'm always thinking of the ways in which I, it connects me to more people. Like, I don't think of identity as a thing that makes me unique. I'm thinking of my identity as a thing that connects me with as many people as possible. And again, I know that that is absolutely coming out of my experience. You know, there's something unique, and I don't know that we speak enough about it. There's something very unique about the first generation experience. I think we're also always put in a position to try and figure out where we fit. You know, who am I connected to? Who are my people? You know, because I could go to Ghana every summer and have my cousins remind me that I'm American, <laughs> you know, and then I could be in the schoolyard in New Orleans and have my schoolmates remind me that I'm African, you know, and so you tell me I'm them people and them people telling me I'm you, you know, so is it up to you to tell me who I am or is it up to me to define who I am? And so that need to feel connected you know, has always allowed me to think of my identity much more broadly. I don't know why that made my eyes well up because I, I, because it feels, um, you know, I don't know how many generations my family's been here, right? Like we've been in Minneapolis, like five generations. And I often think about when people ask me, like, where did your family come from or genealogy exercises the school does them with your kids and I can't really point back to where I know where what continent we originated from but I don't know I don't feel rooted Hmm. um and there's something about that that has um been unsettled for me Hmm. 
um, and I imagine has elements of identity because it certainly comes up when people ask me about those types of things, like something very emotional surfaces for me around that. And again, I, I recognize, I was going to say privilege. I don't want to claim it as a privilege, but I recognize that it is. There's a part of me as you were talking that wanted to like ask you why you need that. And I don't mean that with any, you know, flippancy or disrespect because mm-hmm. I, I can understand why, you know, that, that notion of wanting to feel grounded, but I just wonder about those five generations. Don't those generations ground you as well? They do. And I, I don't know why it matters. I've really thought about this. Um, I know my mother uh, passed away in the last year and um, she has some native ancestry and some uh, family members that grew up and and foster and boarding schools, that sort of thing. And I think I think generational sorrow of mm-hmm. not knowing who came before um, has been passed along. And I think that there is a privilege of knowing who you came from, aside from where you came from. And I'm probably bringing those those measures, you know, those things together that are probably coinciding with each other. Um, yeah, I think so. And then I think as I was thinking about both what I started out with a little bit about being from the north side, our conversation around New Orleans, about you know, all of this, you know, identity and who gets to decide and your parents coming and they were very clear and then they became black. And then I started thinking a little bit about the construct of blackness and what does matter and who does get to decide. And I have heard you talk about, um, you know, how blackness was decided and who was black, but how blackness was decided and who was black wasn't always identifiable by skin color your octorone or whatever those things were right so I'm wondering if you could just explain that a little bit in terms of how how and who how blackness was defined particularly in slavery well even pre-enslavement I've been I I probably should reach out to Raul Peck because he needs me on his press tour I keep (laughs) referencing exterminate all the brutes okay and I think the reason why I'm so I'm just in awe of the work and I haven't even finished it because as an educator who teaches about these issues, I'm always thankful for teaching tools that are visual. I'm a visual learner. I'm a creative as well. And so it's one thing to have students read words and talk about it. It's another thing to press play and say, not look. And so he does a beautiful job of, of, of connecting imagery. And storylines, right? And so, again, nothing, I'm not going to say nothing, but not a lot that was brand new, right? But what I appreciated is so, for me, so often we have these conversations about race and they are not only ahistorical, but just just, just disconnected. Like, what's the starting? Where, where, where do people choose to start the conversation, right? The timeline is skewed, right? And so, unfortunately, so many of us talk about race relations and we always want to go straight to enslavement. Yeah. There was so much that happened before enslavement to even justify enslavement. And to me, like, you know, when I think about white supremacy, the insidious nature of white supremacy, the, this 
systemic and the institutional trajectory of white supremacy. Like if we're going to understand how this thing functions in this contemporary moment, we got to map this whole thing out, right? That there was intent, like, because people, people talk about race, like it's happenstance, like it's something just, that just kind of came or like race is a biological fact. And it's like, bro, this was a strategy, right? Like we got to go there. That's why we can't just be like, oh, race is a social construct. Race is a social construct that constructed for the purpose of racism. There is no other need for race. None. There's no other need for race but to create stratification and oppression. And so Blackness was created in juxtaposition of whiteness. Whiteness had to be created in order to isolate and solidify power. And so whiteness was defined as pure, right? And so again, thinking of the visuals of exterminate all the brutes, when we're talking about scientific racism, right? When we're talking about this legacy of white supremacy, it's not that white folks did all of this research and gathered all this data to say, see, we are the superior race. No, they said, we are the superior race. Now let's go find data to support that. Let's create data to support that. So even when you see the historical images of, of folks having their skulls met, brains measured, skulls, they literally threw out the ones that didn't meet <laughs> the standards that they created, right? And so it's, it's, and I say these, I know I'm all over the place. I say this because, again, I, I'm trying to push back against folks who try to think of science as fact, <laughs> okay. right? Because science is still created. It's what they said it was. And we take it as fact. The facts were created for a purpose. Whiteness was created for white supremacy, period. There's no other need for it. There's no other need for it. When we think about people living all over the globe, what is the need to create a unified identity, if not to isolate power? And in order to justify that power, you have to create the folks that you should be controlling. And that's Blackness. So whiteness was defined as pure. Whatever that means. Whatever, whatever that means. Whatever they said it means. Right? And so if you weren't pure, then you were other, if not Black. And again, the language, you know, different language over time, Negro, colored, so on and so forth. But ultimately, we'll say that you were not white. And so, again, there's so much history. So I guess the simplest way to, to say it is that the one drop rule, you know, was literally a way for them to say, this is how we are isolating whiteness. We're letting you know, we don't care what you look like. We don't care if you have as little as one drop of Negro, Black, African blood. You are then Negro, Black, African. On paper, it was supposed to discourage the quote unquote mixing of the races. It was to let people know no matter how much mixing you do, if we find that drop, you're still black, right? Or Negro or what have you. In reality, what it did was actually encourage the mixing because what it then said was for these white enslavers, these white colonizers and oppressors that you can rape African women, you can rape native women, you can create all manner of children and you don't have anything to do with them. They're not yours. State sanctioned. Yep. 
So, so the watch rot rule was written? It was. It was recorded as the, the rule of hypo descent. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it defined blackness. Really, in a lot of ways, it defined whiteness. Again, it was attempting to reiterate the idea that whiteness was pure. Whatever that means. And so, when we, again, it's for me, it's pushing back against what we recognize as stuff. People take racist stuff, right? And it's not to dismiss it because it is absolutely part of our lived experience now. We can't walk away from it, right? But when I say fact, how do you measure race? Mm-hmm. You created race, right? You can measure ethnicity. When we do all these ancestry tests, you can tell me where my people came and what regions and so on and so forth. But what's that mean when it comes to race? You assign those people a race and then you make and take meaning based upon the race that you've assigned them. To say someone is Bantu, Igbo, Yoruba, Akan is to say nothing but where they come from and their particular cultural identity, right? To say that they are Black is to assign another identity on top of that in relation to whiteness. It is to create a relationship to the power system. That's it. And so that colorism has been embraced even in the Black community? It's not about it being embraced. What option do you have? Yeah, I mean, embrace was not the best use of word, but that I see how. So I will say like embrace is not the right word, but we have lived into a system of race that has impacted, I think, our own understanding of who we are relative to other black people um, based on skin color. And, you know, my sister is lighter skin than I am. And we like she gets assigned different things than I do. And we're often like growing up, especially we were always questioned on whether or not we have the same parents or not, which I think is a pretty bold question to just ask some kids, to be honest, <laughs> you know, to ask me as an adult, I think, you know, you definitely on some boundaries here. But right, right. Um, but it's really interesting in terms of how it plays out and how people assign and assume and move forward with those assumptions. Well, I'll say this. Right. So I think there's there's a there's a bridge between white supremacy and colorism, between racism and colorism, yes. But as we speak about the one drop rule and um, designations of race when it comes to white and black, that is a foundation. I wouldn't call that colorism, right? That is white supremacy. That is racism. That is social stratification based upon assigned race, yes. Colorism is... Because again, remember, if if they're saying as little as one drop can make you black, they don't care what you look like. <laughs> Many folks, you know, are passe blanc, as we say in New Orleans, you know, pass for white, present as white, and they will still tell you that you're black. So in that context, it don't matter what you look like within our communities. And I also don't want to make that hard of a break, right? Because it's not just, I think a lot of times when we talk about colorism, People talk about it as if it's only the internalized. It's only what we do to each other. But colorism still impacts how the broader society looks at us. So when we think about mediated images, which Black woman is going to be cast as the Black mom? Which Black woman is going to be cast as an object of beauty, if that's even possible for a Black woman? Which Blackness is palatable 
palatable, you know what I'm saying? Palatable for white audiences. Now that's absolutely predicated on colorism, right? But colorism, we understand to be, you know, hierarchical perceptions of value and prejudicial treatment based upon skin color. So if we understand the way white supremacy structures lived realities, if whiteness is at the top and blackness is at the bottom, we've got a whole spectrum of colors in between. Mm -hmm. And it's one's ability to approximate or get closer to the whiteness that also, you know, it's like a ladder. The closer you are to whiteness, the more value you are assigned, right? The assumption, the presumption is that, you know, it's the whiteness perhaps that saves you, <laughs> you know, that, you know, we talk about one drop of blackness, sure, but what's all that other whiteness do for and to you, you know? And so we see it within our communities and, and I absolutely pay attention to those things. I study those things. We have to talk about those things, but it's, also my commitment to make sure that we don't ever let white supremacy off the hook. Right on. We not only talk about these conversations as if we did this to ourselves. We didn't create this. I will never let white supremacy off the hook for us. Because, you know, people will say crabs in a barrel. Crabs aren't supposed to be in a barrel. <laughs> the right. barrel white supremacy. Why are we not talking about the barrel? Y'all so busy talking about the crabs. The, fa- the barrel's here. <laughs> Can we talk about the barrel? If the crabs would get together and try to knock this barrel over, we'd all be free. We too busy talking about what we're doing to each other. We're not supposed to be in the barrel. The barrel is white supremacy. So I think we have to have, again, we have to understand the politics of race, right? And the politics of identity so that we don't turn the lens on ourselves or we don't pathologize ourselves. We didn't do this to ourselves. Do you think that we are, um, you know, we're in a place where people are using, we're in a, in a reckoning on race. Do you think we're in a place where we can disrupt white supremacy? Got to name it first. People aren't comfortable naming it. I mean, I hear the words all the time, reckoning on race, white supremacy, um, white allyship. Like I hear a lot of conversation that is happening right now. I'm in Minneapolis, right? There's a lot of stuff happening in Minneapolis. But, you know, I do have concerns on whether or not, number one, we understand sort of historical context. Do we understand what the barrel really is? Right. And do you think we're at a place really where we can disrupt this? Like what what? Will it take? A lot. A lot. <laughs> a lot. I mean, can um, we do it in 2021 or what? <laughs> it's not happening in our lifetime. Not in our lifetime. Nope. But we are we have to chip away at it. It's going to be better for generations if we stay the course. But I'm trying to self-describe in a way that I'm not a pessimist. <laughs> I don't want to say that. I'm a realist. realist way. Yes. But I say that, and you know, I, I, I promise you, I try to check myself, right? In the sense that I, I get frustrated in many conversations. I also know that I shouldn't be a part of every conversation. Like everybody can't, you know, what's that book? that the wrote a book, uh, why, why I don't talk to white people about race. Like certain people, everybody has a, a role to play, right? It's frustrating for me, just in the grand scheme of all of the work that I do 
when I think about diversity and equity and inclusion work, I don't even like the language. So I'm the anti-diversity consultant that's going to come in and tell you why all your language is a problem. Who wants to hear that? <laughs> so I work with the folks who are ready to hear it. I'm not saying I have all the answers, but for me, in terms of as I, the way I see the work and the ways that we need to be chipping away at it, I'm not giving out gold stars. It's not enough to self-identify as a white ally. It's not enough to put a Black Lives Matter sign in, 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 on, on your board. Do, do, do Black Lives How? Show me. Because what you value, you do. So beyond your statement, what it look like? You want me to come to your company and talk about diversity and equity work? You want to boast all the stats about how you have a diverse company? If I talk to those people who represent diversity, what would they tell me? Are their voices, are their diverse voices and perspectives somehow um, impacting the work that you do? Are you listening to them or are you just dog and pony show? Look at my black, look at my Latinos, look at my Asian. What's it mean? So for me, operationalize it, prove it. So if we are going to have a conversation about diversity, the problem is that we're only talking about the people who represent diversity. We're not the problem. So you can say the language of white supremacy. Do you want to talk about it? Because now you're uncomfortable. Now you might have to take some accountability. Oh, you're not your ancestors though, right? So you don't want to be held accountable for the things that folks did generations before you, but you still benefit from a particular privilege that they created for you. Like we, we, we can't do both. You can't do both. You cannot do both. The issue is that you want to be comfortable in doing this work. The change doesn't happen in a comfortable place. So if you only want those of us to come to, you know, come to the table, come to the mic and make you comfortable, I know I'm not the person to do that, you know, and, and quite honestly, in the past year and a half, you know, now that everybody wants to be woke and, and, and pay attention, you know, George Floyd's murder was not new or unique. It's the one that you had to pay attention to because of quarantine. Because there was nowhere for you to escape to. You had to pay attention, right? We made you pay attention. But unique from Emmett Till how? <laughs> right? Unique from countless numbers of brothers and sisters who have been murdered by the state. How? You had to pay attention. Okay, so, okay, fine. Let me not be ungrateful. We're in this moment. Everybody <laughs> needs to pay attention. What conversations are you willing to have? Yeah. And what are you willing to do? Because the thing is, Folks want credit for having the conversation. That's not enough. Yeah, I mean, yes, yes. People do want credit for having the conversation. But I also think that um, there is a tendency to jump into solutions so quickly. And that's why I was sort of jesting around, like, can it happen in 2021? Because I am definitely seeing, like, these solutions just flying with just such confidence. And I'm, I'm just, you know, in some cases I'm thinking, did we, we didn't examine the question and I'm not sure who was involved. Um, and, and this could, this is almost in some ways more concerning. Um, and I'm watching the silencing um, or I'm watching 
the, how power is shifting, but it's not moving together in any sort of way, right? Like it, it, there's something at, at play that I can't quite articulate. You know, you use the metaphor of research, right? So when we think about it from a research perspective, the first thing you do in research is that you have to identify the issue and you have to, you have to articulate your research question. Who's articulating the research question? Because when we give you the research question, you don't like how we say it. Right? So who gets to name the problem? That could be, let's start there. Who gets to name the problem? And once whomever names the problem, who gets to seek solution? Which is so interesting to me. This is what I'm saying. Like, we're telling you our lived experience. We're telling you the issues, but we're angry. You You say all lives matter. Or, and I should say, make it even bigger than that. Y'all want to talk about Black Lives Matter, but don't you say a thing about Palestine. You see what I'm saying? Do we want to talk about white supremacy or do we want to talk about making America a more comfortable place for you to live in right now so you can go back to making the money to how you make it? Which this is what I'm saying. Like, yeah. I mean, this issue of, you know, again, I just think that people have gotten so used to defining the question and creating the solution. Which people? The people. And then (laughs) the people. And then they bring diversity. Which people? White people. White people have done that. And I'm I'm speaking to my experience here in Minneapolis where white folks have been at a table that has not been diverse, defining the question and the solution. And then when diversity shows up, they're still manipulating the question. They're half listening. And they're still coming out with a question that isn't even fully representative of the one expert, the two experts that they invited to the table. And I I just really hope that these tables take a step back to examine how they're listening. Because it's one thing for you to be in the conversation. It's one, it's another thing for you to be a good listener while you're at the table. To just rethink how you're listening right now. And again, this is what I'm saying. Everybody don't want to talk to me. So what I'm saying, (laughs) why would they, let's just be real. Why would, do they have to do that? They don't have to do it. Because the only reason why people moved in the ways that they have moved in the last year and a half is because folks took to the streets. You have to do something. Huh? Yeah. If you are not pushed to do something differently, why would you? Again, comfort. And again, to be fair, <laughs> if there is such a thing. If there is a thing called fairness, yes. If we understand the intersectionality of our lived experiences, identity, we're going to talk about white supremacy. We cannot, do, 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 we cannot talk about that in isolation of capitalism. We cannot talk about that in, in, in isolation of, of patriarchy. Uh, any number of institutions, right? I've been calling this year and a half the reparations train. Okay, why? Because there are a lot of us who are now anti-racist something or another who are not. 
Why? Because white guilt is throwing obnoxious amounts of money at the problem. Ask me how I know. How do you know? You know how I know. (laughs) Obnoxious amount of money, right? And I'm not mad. Get your coin. At the same time, everybody is not qualified to be at the table when it comes time to name the problem and to seek solution. So how do you, how does one who is truly interested in setting the right table and getting to the right solution, how are they able to distinguish between who is right at the table and who might be wrong? I mean, in the same way that you would look for any other quote unquote expert, look at their receipts. What's the work that they've done? What are the conversations that they've had? But also, I think it's a lot to put on anybody's shoulders to think that you're going to have, listen, no one book, no 45 minute lecture, no, none of, no one thing is going to fix any of it. Right. And so again, I get inquiries all the time. Folks want a diversity speaker. You want a one hit wonder. Again, what you value, you do. Where is the line item in your annual budget for this work? Because guess what? It's going to take more than a year. But let's just start with this one. Where is the line item for the entire year for you to do this work? This is not a one conversation. This is also not one conversation that is an option. You know how many times I've been asked to come and speak and I'm asking who's going to be in the room and it's whoever shows up? Mm-hmm. A word? This is an option? So I I get to be racist here, huh? I don't have to do it. You tell me it's important, but I'm going to choose not to come to the talk because I don't feel like dealing with it. That's what we're doing. But you want a gold star for having had the black speaker come and talk. What you value, you do. In the same way that you are required to make us, you know, when you get hired and you got to do the little HIPAA training. (laughs) You know, you can't sleep on you. You you can't have step on that because the government's involved, right? You know where you can cut corners and where you can't. This so-called diversity, inclusion, equity work is it's an option. Make it not an option. Yeah. This is how you show people, if you want to work for this company, this is what we're about. Who's willing to do that? Can we just take a few minutes to talk about the people navigating these spaces? Um, Black people. Okay. Thank you for helping me be exact. (laughs) Not not to, you know, I'm doing that because I think also it's a modeling that we need because there are, to be honest, so many of us are so exhausted by our lived realities in this that it is uncomfortable to have to continually name the thing, to continually name the thing. The onus is is on us to continually name the thing. And so we're tired. And so we cut corners. Yeah. We got to name the thing. Mm -hmm. It may not be comfortable to say white people, but say white people. It may not be comfortable to say us. There's another thing that grinds my gears, right? When Black folks talk about, we talk about Black people and we say they. Who is they? That means you? Yeah, yeah. I don't do that. But yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I might say I might do some shortcutting because and I'm also talking to you and looking at you. And I know that we have 
I, I can see in our face when we're in agreement and that's not what the audience gets to see. But, you know, we have uh, folks, us, Black folks, brown and Black folks that are navigating white supremacist space. Mm-hmm. And I did hear you talk uh, in your interview with Brene Brown about your academic experience and navigating space and not being recognized and the weight that we put on ourselves to do better, do more in the hopes that we will be seen in, in, a, in a way. And that's how I took that's how I took it. Can you just describe that? Because I don't think that there is a full recognition of I I think the weight of what it means to navigate is better understood for for a lot of the black women that I've encountered over this last year and a half because of the 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 uh, intensity. And it has revealed a number of things that we have been carrying that I think I am reckoning with and others are reckoning with in terms of some of those things and the ways in which we interact with systems as a survival tactic. Mm -hmm. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. I can see your face. You're like, say more, say more. I'm like, what you want me to say? (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I mean, so when I heard you, I'm just like, you know, it's amazing to have such brilliance exist in so many places. And yet we question our brilliance and and how we show up. And and I just wanted you to just layer that in a little bit, because a lot of times it is us in those diversity, equity and inclusion roles or it is us. You know, there there's diversity at the table, whatever it looks like. That is, you know, the first, the only, the few that are working to create and make room and having to show up and, and balance sort of their reality in the broader politics. Right. I mean, I think in the same ways that we are asking white folks to honor our humanity, we have to honor our own. Um, and it's not you know, there are no easy answers. There's no judgment. You know, I get it. At the end of the day, many of us, we got to pay our bills. We have to make money. You know, we have to lead sustainable lives. Um, Many of us are in industries that, you know, are very white centered, you know, measures of success. Very white centered. I mean, something as simple as just think of the year and a half that we've lived. Right. And all of the things that have happened. I'm thinking of last week, week before last the murder of Micaiah Bryant. It stuck me to my core. I'm a black woman. I'm the mother of a black woman. I'm the grandmother of two black girls. I know Micaiah Bryant. I know many of Micaiah Bryant. I saw a TikTok video of her laying down her baby hair. I know Micaiah Bryant, right? The idea that she could be murdered on a Wednesday night and Thursday morning, I still have a calendar full of Zooms and podcasts and appointments that I have to show up to. And I'm supposed to just show up and smile and say good morning and keep it pushing, right? Where's the flag at half mass? Where where is the day of, of recognition or remembrance? Or, you know, what if I'm walking into a white corporate space? Don't nobody have to acknowledge that baby. But she sits in my heart as I attempt to continue to work. And so we, people, again, people... Talk about equity on the surface. We're not having the same lived experience. There aren't the same expectations. You still expect me to show up and work. 
you still expect me to show up and work. And it's not so easy for me to do. So then as you compare me to my white counterparts, right, and my ability to be productive, we probably don't measure up. Well, we don't have the same life. We don't have the same weight on our shoulders. Just living in this world, just watching the news. We don't, it's not the same, but I don't get a pass. If anything, I'm expected to work more and to work harder, right? When I think of my time in in academia, um, I think the struggle, and again, they don't call it the ivory tower for no reason. There are many of us who do well in that space and we need, we need us folk in that space, right? So this is, thank y'all for being there who are able to do the work. It wasn't for me primarily because um, the work that I do, I struggle because academia is an elitist space. It just is. Everybody can't afford tuition, right? Um, And when I think of the kinds of conversations I would have with my students in the classroom, everybody deserves to have those conversations. Like as we're sitting here trying to map out what is the problem and who should be talking, like these are conversations. This is information. This is education. The average American doesn't know basic history. And if they do, they know the history that was fed to them for a particular strategic reason. So why would they think critically about the world that they live in? They were never taught to think critically. Here I am in a college classroom attempting to teach my students to think critically about everything. And they are privileged to have that conversation because they're paying tuition, whether they're going into debt for it, whether their parents were able to pay for it, whether they have a scholar, whatever it is, there's money assigned to having that conversation. Meanwhile, we're asking the entire country to do something different and do something better. But we won't give them access to conversations to help them, to guide them, to get them to start thinking critically. And so I struggle because... And where where there could be access in K-12 education, we're unwilling to change the curriculum. Please. We got got white parents out here saying that... uh, they don't want their children to have to, to learn about race, that they're too young and they shouldn't have to. And you got nine-year-old little girls testifying in murder cases. Yeah. Witnesses to George Floyd's murder. We don't, again, we don't get, we, we don't get such luxuries as Black people, Right. And so for me, the struggle was just like, okay, what it means to be an academic, teaching research service, teaching, cool, I got it. Research, you want me to write in a particular voice, you want me to publish in particular journals, who has access to these journals? Why am I doing this work if the actual Black people for whom I do this work can't even understand the language that I use or can't even access the journals? I haven't taught uh, in an institution for the last two years, me, PhD, Dr. Blay, I can't access JSTOR. I can't get academic journals. You see what I'm saying? And so like, why am I doing this work? It was, it was absolutely an identity crisis <laughs> for me. You know, um, who am I doing this work for? And what does this all mean? On top of the fact that, you know, 
I, I just know that I wasn't valued. It, the, academia is probably the least affirming space I've ever worked in. My students love me. I love my students. But if you don't function in a particular mode of operation, you know, if you don't align with the way that faculty behave, dress, speak, you know, what have you, then you're an outsider. And I was absolutely an outsider in that regard. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm taking a break. I'll call it that. But it would have to be a phenomenal position for me to go back. Well, I yeah. hope you get the phenomenal position. And I hope that um, people listening understand that, you know, even with uh, our students moving and black and brown people moving around and it, you know, there's a, a set of assumptions that go on there without recognizing what um, what it means to belong in a space. Um, the importance of belonging. Or to just being seen like I'm the professor. If we had class scheduled the day after Micaiah Bryant's murder, you would have got an email from me to say we're not having class, but I'll be in the classroom if you want to talk. That's right. Why is that like again, we want. Like, are we human? Just because you don't have to connect to this baby's murder and you can go on business as usual, it doesn't mean that I, as a mother of a Black girl, can do that. It doesn't mean that I, as a Black girl, can do that. Why would we expect our college students to just be these little automatons? Read your work, write your paper, get your degree and move on. Like to honor their humanity is to honor the humanity of all of us. But again, when we get to the syllabus says we got 15 weeks and on this day we're doing this. And if we don't do this, we're going to be behind, please. We're not doing it. Yeah. And I just think that in my mind, I know it's rocket science for a lot of people. In my mind, these are basics. Because what you value, you do. And this looks so much different than a Black Lives Matter sign. What's that mean? What's that look like? Do we need her? Oh, I, yeah. Prove it. Prove it. And, you know, I connect on the mom. I've got a daughter and four sons. And, you know, I think often and always about what this imagery is doing to them. Of course. And, um, and what what am I doing to them when I get up and I'm following my calendar after one of these events? Am I probably caring for their emotions um, relative to what they're what they're witnessing? It's 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 such a complicated. It is, but also uh, black dance. I also say this, black mother to black mother, that sometimes the best thing that we can show our children is our own humanity. Mama don't feel like it today. I'm sad. I don't even know what to do. Yeah. I don't have to tell you this whole world is messed up. Yeah. I'm in bed today. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. yeah, we got there on the Floyd, on the, um, the Chauvin trial where the day of the verdict, I'm calling my 15 year old, like, come down. It's historic. I need you to see it. And he wasn't responding to me. And, you know, I went into like, is he ignoring me? And then I was like, no, he, he's actually taking care of himself. Yeah. Right. And just said, it's, it's cool. Tell me what you're feeling. Let's, let's talk about it. You need some space. You got it. Right. right. I'm feeling super emotional too. If you need me, I'm, a, I'm, I'm downstairs. Right. Yeah. We have to navigate. 
we navigate these spaces differently and not by choice. And so what it means to say Black Lives Matter as an employer, as an ally, as a friend, is to recognize that and give people some time and some space. But if you keep, like sometimes I look at my email and I'm like, leave me alone. <laughs> I can like, live in the same world. What does it mean to honor people's humanity? Give me a minute. And no, don't check in and ask me how I'm feeling because now you're requiring me to put language to something to you for what? What you gonna do? What you gonna do? It makes you feel better because you asked the question. It does not make me feel better to answer it. That's not taking care of me. That's not holding space for your people. Holding space is literally just that, holding space. Give me 15 feet. Give me 15 feet. That's it. Because sometimes when you need the space, then it's like, what's going on? What's wrong? You know, then you got to explain the emotion behind it with things that seem to be so obvious. Which makes me offended. Which makes you offended. That I have to explain. And if I have to explain, I mean, you don't get it. So go talk to somebody. Go talk to your people. <laughs> That's the best line ever. <laughs> Well, as we close out, that's best. I enjoyed it. I'm going to be more exacting because I'm, you know, you're right. You get tired of talking about it, but it's so necessary for us to continue to be in these conversations and do it in ways that are more reflective of the reality. And um, your book is on its way. It got delayed. It was supposed to be at my door. So it is ordered one day. Hopefully I can get it signed. I'm going to encourage people to go out. I hear it's a beautiful, beautiful book that you want on your coffee table. And um, if there's one thing that you want people to take away from your book, what is it? Mm. I mean, as corny as it sounds, Black is beautiful. But um, that's enough, too. But also, Black is Black is so. Black is. Vast. It's nuanced. There's so many. Like, I just want people to rethink what they think they know about. Ask more questions. I have no answers. Ask more. I appreciate you, your work, what you offered me today. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. That's Dr. Gabblebley and our host, Shonda Smith-Baker. Dr. Gabblebley's book called One Drop, Shifting the Lens on Race is available on Amazon or wherever you get your books. You can visit her website at yabbleblay.com and follow her on Twitter and Instagram at yabbleblay. If you're interested in sponsoring this podcast or just looking for ways to do more, please contact me. You can find more information on our website at minneapolisfoundation.org. If you like this episode, you can tweet Shonda at Shonda S. Baker and let her know or leave us a review and follow us wherever you get your podcast. Thank you to Sarah Gillen for making our artwork and copy for this episode. And thank you to Darlin Benjamin for coordinating and making this conversation happen. This is Sue Potkinitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you soon.